Trevor Alpern, the Timon of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except it's occurring in this particular case on a Tuesday. The managing editor of important weblog, Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. And as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. I coerce Dave Cameron into a protracted discussion regarding the similarities of home buying and free agent signing. On the one hand, we have the home buyer who finds a house that is to his or her tastes. On the other, we find a club or perhaps a club owner, an organization's owner, who finds a free agent to his or her tastes. What are the similarities? What are the differences? I can tell you this. Dave Cameron applies the economic term of substitutability to this situation, a concept with which I can say I was anecdotally aware, uh, but um, was treated to a more thorough understanding uh, by, by virtue of this conversation. Also in this program, when asked how he felt about uh, being valued at uh, roughly $400 million, Bryce Harper requested a reporter not to sell him short. How aware are players generally of their value in the open market? Is it unique for Bryce Harper? Is it not? Dave Cameron has some notions on this uh, particular idea. And finally, if you were not planning on listening to the first minute of the conversation to follow, the following utterance by Cameron, which does appear in that first minute, might persuade you to change your mind. I will say that I had a, uh, a appointment with a physician last week, and uh, she actually asked me, does your voice always sound like this? All that and slightly more in what follows. What's following immediately is an ad from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft and the Draft app. Have I mentioned Draft before? It is a daily fantasy sports game, not unlike FanDuel or DraftKings. This is also the first such game designed specifically for your mobile device. You can skip to the end of this message. However, it will be shorter. I promise you, if you listen, all I need to tell you, all I need to tell you is a couple of things. The draft is available for you if you have the iOS operating system. It's available at the App Store. If you have an Android system, it is available at Google Play or something like Google Play. Draft is available not merely for baseball. That wouldn't make sense on account of we're in February. It's available also, for example, for professional basketball and hockey. And it allows you, in most states I'm pretty sure, it allows you to wager American currency. And finally, at some level, it supports the existence of Fangraphs Audio. So if you're the sort of person whose sensibility is not wholly offended by the program, then consider downloading and beginning to play Draft in the Draft app. Thank you very much. That's the end of it. That's not the end of everything, though, because what's beginning right now is a conversation with managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Better, you said it better this most recent week than, than the week before. Sounded my, better, like in like my voice improved or like my no, no your voice no no your voice has not improved. Let me yeah. be clear about that. But um, it was it was recorded more ably. It was recorded betterly. Yeah, I, I will say that I had a, uh, a appointment with a physician last week, and uh, she actually asked me, "Does your voice always sound like this?" No, she didn't. Yeah. That's was, <laughs> was part of part of her question. What did uh, what did she mean by that? So I've uh, I've had the 
some procedures done on my uh, esophagus before. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, just because I'm married to somebody who works in cancer, I've had a lot of tests, well, and I had cancer, I guess. Yeah, uh, I've, had, that, yeah. <laughs> I, I've had uh, a lot of tests to make sure I don't get other kinds of cancers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, apparently there's something called Barrett's esophagus that you can develop if you have uh, too much acid in your in your lungs. Uh, or in your, I don't know, somewhere inside of you. And yeah. so uh, it was part of the question of, like, should I go have more tests? Is, like, my voice apparently sounds like someone who could have uh, acid slash cancer. <laughs> yeah. But that's just how you, that's just your voice. But uh, I was like, yeah, I've sounded like this since I was, like, six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I was actually thinking about when uh, um, those moments when physicians make comments um, that you do not maybe that maybe reflect poorly on their bedside manner. Uh, when I was uh, in college, I developed a, a it was not full blown goiter, you know, but it was a large growth on my neck or growth. But I think it was just a uh, what do you call it, like a swollen lymph node, right? Okay. That happens, yeah. But yeah. it was very swollen, yeah. and I was concerned. I felt terrible, so I went to the health center, and uh, I should also say I was quite anxious about it because. You know, if you go to WebMD and you look up that sort yeah, yeah. of, it's a, yeah. you're always dying. You're always dying, yeah. yeah. And so I was, you know, I was just an anxious little guy, and I went to the doctor. I was sitting in the uh, physician's room, and she walked in. She was looking at some paperwork, and then she <laughs> she looked up at me, and she goes, "Whoa!" And I go, "She goes, that's giant." And I was like, "Oh, I know that you're only saying that." Um, because it, you know that it's not actually that big of a deal. She's like, no, we need to take care of that immediately. <laughs> I did not care for that. Yeah. I, I would make a joke about her saying that's giant, but this is a, a podcast, a uh, family-friendly podcast. Family podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a question, Dave Cameron. Um, what uh, – and, 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 I'll, and I'll give you a sort of um, a scenario for a, a concrete example of it. <clears throat> I'm interested in the, the relationship, the similarities – between a club, an organization signing a free agent, okay. and a uh, and a person buying a house. Um, mm. and, and so here's an example, right? Say you are a person, which by all accounts, yeah. you, you, you at least you resemble one. Right? Yeah, it's been questioned after my TV appearances. But. Right. And there is a house that you find on the block for, uh, we'll say, $220,000, okay? Okay. Um, I think, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's how much pri- houses cost sometimes. Uh, now, say you were a sort of person who was willing to spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? Right. So you yeah. say, and, and you like the house. Say this is a house that I like. It's less than my budget. Yeah. I'm ready. But say also that the houses in the immediate vicinity, the comparables, um, have sold uh, for only two hundred thousand. Right. Okay. Now, obviously, this brings up if it's appraised, whatever, it brings up questions of financing, et cetera. I'm not concerned about that for right now. But here's the situation. You found a house that you like. You you want the house. And you would you would have been willing to pay even more for this sort of house. At the same time, you know that the houses around it have sold uh, for, for considerably less. And uh, obviously, that has some influence in the resale value. But there's no replacement for this house that you're looking at. So, this is the only house for sale. It's not the whole, only house for sale, but you, it's the other ones that, that you've found like it. You don't uh, like it. You don't like them, or they're two hundred fifty thousand as opposed to two twenty. Okay, so this is the only house at that price, <clears throat> right? But the ones around it 
in the past, say the past what six months to a year, have have sold for two hundred thousand. Right. But and they're not currently for sale. No, people like those houses. Right. So theoretically, since people like those houses, they should be worth more. But that's fine. We'll go with your analogy. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So what ha- so what happens in that particular case? Is it it's on the one hand you say this is this is an affordable price for a house I want. On the other, you say, well, I have to consider resale value. Yeah. And this happens with free agency too, right? Sometimes there is a specific player that a club likes. Yeah. And they say we want to give this guy uh, $25 million a year, even if uh, there's no club around that would give him even $20 million a year, say. Right. Or we want to trade for this specific player and we're willing to pay more for this guy than some other player. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I think it's one of the interesting things uh, when talking about transactions or how to evaluate a move or evaluate a decision is I think there's a difference between – uh, say a good and a bad decision. Like you, this, this is a decision that helps me, and this is a decision that hurts me. There are moves that fall into one of those two categories. Versus, this is just a less good decision, right? So, like uh, maybe buying a house for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. It's only worth two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Won't ruin you. It's not going to have a negative impact on your life. You would have to pay more in rent. Like there, it, it's not a bad decision, but it would be a better decision to buy a house that's worth. Two hundred and forty thousand dollars for two twenty, if you could, uh, or to buy a house that's worth two twenty for you know if, it, if that was available. So, I think the the question is uh, kind of along the scale of kind of good to bad in this middle area, kind of north of break even. Are there decisions that are um, you know not the most efficient way, <laughs> the the best decision you could make, but are still worth making? And I think one of the things that we try and understand and look at is 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 this something that the uh, baseball team generally is how we're looking at these things instead of mortgages? Um, is this a team something where the team had an actual substitute? If there's no substitute, if this is you need this thing and this is the only thing available and there's no other way to uh, improve your team, maybe paying 10 or 20 percent more than kind of the market value is worth it uh, relative to not spending the money. But I think the trick in baseball, unlike in housing, is there is always a way to spend money. In baseball, there's just never a time where you can't improve your organization somehow. By Even using, if it's, right, you say, like, I, I need a pitcher. Well, yeah. you don't necessarily need a left-handed pitcher, or you don't necessarily need a relief pitcher, or you don't necessarily, I mean, you don't even really need a pitcher. You just need to improve your team somehow. You need to buy wins. <laughs> and you don't, sometimes you don't even have to buy present wins. You can buy future wins, and you can do that by signing prospects or buying draft picks or taking on someone else's dead contract in order to get one of their prospects. So, I think in baseball, I don't know that there's ever a scenario where you say, I don't have options. You always have options. Where in the housing market, maybe you don't. Right. Okay. So and I don't, is there a word for this? It has something to do with essentially the um, the assets that are available to you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like in economic terms, you'd call this like substitutability. Like, can you substitute from one good into another? And if you can substitute from one good into another, then – it kind of drives down the price for both goods because if the demand for one good gets too high, people will just buy the other. Right. And uh, But there are teams, it seems, there's certainly – I feel like there are situations we've seen in baseball, especially in the free agent market, where a team could become so enamored of a particular player um, that that even if there is something similar available, there's something about that player's identity uh, that, to which they're particularly drawn, and they and they spend more than the wins that player will, is likely to provide. 
Right. I mean, it comes down to a question of like, do we think the team should always be buying wins or are they buying something besides wins? And I think in some cases you can make a case, uh, especially with a guy like Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera, um, kind of these like franchise icon type players that you're buying more than wins. And it's a economically rational decision to have a guy like Jeter retire, having only played for the Yankees in his entire career and going into the Hall of Fame kind of as one of the legends and, you know, kind of, um, it's basically brand building essentially. And I think you can make an argument that your future revenues will be, uh, larger from having that gain than the cost of paying him, uh, versus, you know, paying a slightly more, uh, effective ball player at the end of his career. Um, but I think that it's tricky when it gets extended to like a guy like Chris Davis, right? Who, um, I think general consensus is that the Orioles overpaid to resign Chris Davis because Peter Angelos likes him. And right. Well, what so, kind of house is Chris Davis? Yeah, Chris Davis is basically a McMansion, right? Like one, of these, <laughs> one of these like new construction homes built in like a gentrified neighborhood uh, that's you know is overbuilt and uh, you know when the bubble bursts isn't going to last. Right, and maybe it's maybe it's not full of materials that that are going to um, right. age particularly well. Yeah, is uh, you know, actually the metaphor of, is really and... <laughs> it's really apt. The yeah. metaphor in the subfloor is not great, maybe. Right. Yeah, is uh, you know maybe built in Florida in like uh, 2007 when everyone was like, oh, let's go buy homes in Florida, yeah. and then realize no one wants to live in Florida. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I was, I was recently visiting my grandfather in Florida. He's like, you guys. He's like, you know, the coast is too expensive for you guys. Talking to uh, my wife and me, and uh, but you can move inland. I said, who wants to live? I mean, listen. I understand if you're from Florida, you want to be from family, but just to be people from New Hampshire. And move inland to Florida does not sound particularly attractive. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be from New Hampshire. Just moving inland in Florida, period, does yeah, not sound attractive. Seems, yeah, like I mean, nothing against the state of Florida. There are nice people there, uh, but they should leave. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So so Chris Davis is a type of house, we're yeah. saying. And, but with, if you're comparing the two, the sort of two markets that exist, we have to assume that in baseball – there are more options for your money, whereas there's not as much substitutability in um, in the housing market. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the main probably points of contention between maybe the way we see contracts and the way that some teams or some fans see contracts is can you just look at you know Chris Davis and say that's a three-win player or a four-win player, whatever you think he is, and could I go buy those three or four wins for less money? The answer is almost certainly yes. Like, if you look at what other players were going for this winter, you know, I think Justin Upton is as good or better a player than Chris Davis, and he's younger, and he costs $30 million less. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think there's too much of a question that the Orioles could have per- replaced Chris Davis's performance uh, without spending as much money. That brings up kind of a couple of questions, right, is does Chris Davis offer non-win value to the Orioles that makes up the kind of justification for spending more on him specifically, uh, or were those things actually available? Like maybe Justin Upton wouldn't have played for the Orioles. There are things that we don't know uh, that I think, especially when we look at like a team like the Rockies, who I haven't been particularly nice to on their decisions over the last few years, um, and, you know, I think one of the, the – kind of criticisms I've had out of them on their moves this winter is if they were going to spend a whole bunch of money to sign Gerardo Parra just so they could trade Corey Dickerson for a reliever, they should have just signed a reliever. But we don't know that relievers, like, you know, maybe Darren O'Day would have just been like, I'm not going to Coors Field for any amount of money, right? Like, like uh, there's a decent chance that getting free agent pitchers who have options to go to Colorado is really difficult. So, they, so, so they, we might find them having to trade. Would, would you regard, is there a 
the opposite side of that where uh, like uh, the San Diego Padres or say the Mariners teams with yeah. uh, uh, pitcher friendly parks might have a harder time acquiring hitters. Yeah, and I think we've seen historically that like for the same price, hitters are not going to go somewhere uh, they don't enjoy playing, so they're going to require a premium. And same thing with a losing team, right? Like if you're a bad team, you have to pay significantly more for a good player than a good team, and this is an advantage sort of being a winner. Is like if you, if you're winning, not only are you you know already good, which is nice, you also get a discount on getting better, and so it uh, kind of perpetuates your goodness. Is that you know if you don't necessarily have to. Uh, pay a premium in order to get players to come play for you if you're an, if you're already a contender. So um, I think there there's a lot of questions about kind of the substitutability of baseball, and it's probably one of the assumptions that you know is made from the outsider's perspective that if we had all of the information that all of teams had, we might have a different perspective, or we might at least uh, think that things are less substitutable than we otherwise assume. Um, and I think it's one of the areas we should probably give teams some leeway to where if, you know, it looks like a $5 million or $10 million or $15 million overpay, it's not a big deal, especially on a larger contract. I think once you get into, like, you know, Chris Davis, in my opinion, is like a 60 or $70 million overpay, it's really difficult to argue that there weren't other options uh for how they could have spent their money, and it's it's hard for me to see how Chris, Chris Davis personally could be worth sixty million dollars more than Justin Upton. That's a, that that happens because we've seen that a lot when the when ownership gets involved, right? And that's kind of the yeah. Scott Boris trademark, yeah. trademark, right? Where yeah. he that's that's uh, as you say, Chris Davis, Peter Angelos, that's Max Scherzer, and may, and maybe Jason Worth in Washington. Uh, is that Prince Fielder in Detroit? Was that also yep. a product mm-hmm. of that? Okay. Yep. And so that's a situation where there's, because I uh, um, uh, in housing, for example, to bring to continue this metaphor, uh, a a potential homebuyer can develop a very emotional uh, reaction to. Sorry, my phone's ringing from there. That's right. Can I can I go let Libby in real quick? She's scratching at the door. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should play the Fangraphs hold music. There we go. Let's hold for thirty seconds. Let's do it. Returned with okay. a dog. Yeah. <clears throat> so it, a, a, a potential home buyer can can develop a very strong emotional attachment to a property before before he or she buys it, before she makes an offer. Absolutely. Um, and that is. Do, do you sense that that same uh, sort of phenomenon occurs among owners? I understand that. Well, no, we actually can't just ask them, but uh, because <laughs> they probably don't want to talk to us about this. The point is. Uh, it, do you, do you sense that that's a that's a thing that that happens? Where substi- yeah. the question of substitutive substitutability goes out the window. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think that's what happened in Baltimore uh, this winter. Mm-hmm. Peter Angelos just said, "I like Chris Davis, and I want to have Chris Davis playing for my team, and I make the decisions, and I'm going to resign Chris Davis." Um, where he basically said, "There are no other Chris Davises on the market. This is the guy. Uh, this is the one." And I mean, they're not going to. I mean, they're going to have him, or I'm not. Um, I think the. The point that we would make kind of as like neutral observers who don't have this kind of affection for the person is that that's just not a great way to run a business. And so if you see baseball as a business and if you see kind of the goal of front office decision making is to maximize wins, uh, it's just not a great way to to put your roster together. And if you make too many decisions like that, 
you're going to end up putting yourself in a position where you have a whole bunch of players that you used to like, but you don't like anymore because they're not any good, and you're bad, and so then your fan base is just angry. So here's a question. The, 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 the Orioles, or at least owner Peter Angelos, wanted Chris Davis, and they paid him, what, 7161 Yeah. Is that right? And that's $23 million a year. Um, what, what do you think the next highest offer Davis received or would have received is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough because they're probably, like, the way teams work is they usually don't just, like, fax out offers. Like, they have to, like, <laughs> go down the road of, like, having conversations. So my guess is, like, Davis didn't have any other concrete offers on the table. Uh, from the reports and talking to people in the game, it doesn't sound like any team said, we're going to really make this guy uh, a priority for us and we're going to, you know, just see if we can get it. See if we can get him to sign for 500 or something. But I think if the Orioles would have just signed Upton or signed someone else, Cespedes or whatever, um, and said, we're out on Chris Davis, we have no interest in re-signing him, at some point, a team would have kind of pushed it on the market and said, okay, uh, this value is too good for us to pass up. This wasn't necessarily our plan, but we're going to kind of take advantage of the fact that his market's crashed and we think we can get a bargain here. The problem is that would have happened, you know, now-ish, and I think when you look at Howie Kendrick and Dexter Fowler and Ian Desmond and these guys that are free agents, they're signing for 20 or 30 percent of what they were hoping to get this winter. And so I think there's a realistic chance that Davis might have had to settle for maybe one of these like three-year, $60 million contracts with a one-year opt-out so he could hit free agency again next winter. Maybe it's something not too different from what Cespedes got, except perhaps even less because there just aren't that many teams looking for first baseman. I think at some point the Astros or the Angels, or one of these teams that really could use a player like Davis in the short term, would have said, you know, we're just not going to be able to pass up this kind of upgrade at 360 or, you know, maybe 480 or something like that. But my guess is that's kind of where Davis's market would have ended up uh, if the Orioles hadn't given him $160 million. Right. So so you, so he probably, your point is teams probably knew that he was going to be – either a combination. They knew he was going to be part of the Orioles' plans – and also they didn't they they weren't he was not the sort of player as you mentioned he was not the sort of player that many teams were targeting and then um beyond that uh you know if the Orioles had gone a different direction then we would have seen his market unfold yeah i mean i think like it came out pretty early in the offseason that the Orioles had offered him 150 million for 7 years and since no team wanted to like play anywhere near that ballpark there was no real point in like trying to lowball Davis because, you know, like if you offer him 480 and he's got 7150 kind of sitting on the table, he's just going to go take the 7150. He's not going to engage with you at 480. So I think we probably never saw anyone really get involved because it was just kind of understood that Angelos valued him higher than anyone else in baseball and he always kind of had that in his back pocket. What would have happened if Angelos had just pulled out and said, I will not resign you at any price? Uh, I think Davis would have taken, you know, probably less than half of what he got. So if no market really formed for Davis, and uh, if, if the reports are true, and uh, there was a rumor that he was uh, that he had received an offer for seven one fifty, why is it that he signed for seven one sixty one? Well, I think that basically accounted for the deferrals. So if you look at kind of how this contract was structured, once you take the forty two million dollars in deferred money into account, the kind of uh, equivalent non-deferred value of the deal would be seven one forty eight. Um, so but it seems like basically. Uh, they put $150 million on the table. Boris said, no, I want more. And they're like, well, we're not going to give you more, but if you just want to get the biggest number possible, we'll defer some of the money so that it's still worth $150 million, and that's how our accounting is going to record this, essentially. Uh, but, you know, you get to report a bigger number. And so I think they kind of just helped Boris look like he won the negotiation by getting it to 161 but they didn't actually give him any more money. Uh, does the Players Union 
Is it, does the players union like that too? Because the, the, the printed number is larger? Maybe. I mean, it's hard to say. Like, you know, yes, you get to put out in the media 150, 160 million, whatever, like, the actual number is. But in terms of, like, what the player actually takes home, it doesn't really matter. In terms of how it's accounted for and people, uh, you know, the, the attorneys for the players and the, uh, the lawyers for the players and the agencies for the players, everyone kind of understands how to do these present value analysis and no one's looking at it and being like, oh, you know, he got 160 million and, and they don't know how to account for the deferred money. So it doesn't really change the valuations within the game. Is there some positive PR from like getting to tell the fans that it's a bigger number? I don't know. Yeah, or maybe it's uh, could uh, could it possibly be negative PR because uh, then you're like, well, we have less money to spend on other players. Right. I mean, that's yeah, that's a possibility from ownership's perspective. Maybe the bigger numbers that with deferred money allow them to say like, well, look, we're still paying Bobby Bonilla, so we can't go sign a free agent. It lets them co- cut costs thirty years down the line. Right. Uh, you mentioned that uh, that play, that pitchers, for example, might avoid signing with the Colorado Rockies yeah. because of the known effects of that park. Uh, we discussed perhaps the possibility that batters might avoid signing in larger parks um, or you know parks that are affected by air currents like um, like San Diego or uh, or in or Seattle. I'm curious, what do you think is sort of the cutoff? I assume that that not every player is walking around uh, with a table of the three-year adjusted um, uh, park factors yeah. uh, from Fangraphs.com uh, everywhere they go. But at the same time, there is obviously like a, a sense that this is a park uh, that does or does not help pitchers or does not does not help batters. Well, what do you think that like what percentage of the of the um, of the parks which exist do you think the average player is, is like is aware of like it plays one way or the other? I would bet like. 30% maybe, like probably like one in three parks is extreme enough to really make a difference, right? So like obviously hitters know, uh, you know, Colorado is the best hitters park in baseball. And I think people know Texas is a really good hitters park and Philadelphia is a pretty good hitters park. And like there are a few parks that have reputations. The Yankee Stadium is a good, especially for left-handed hitters. Um, and then there's, a, you know, basically all the West Coast parks. Like there's just the ball doesn't fly on the West Coast. So uh, pitchers know that if you want to like rehab your your uh, counting stats, just go west. Uh, and the, the further west you go, once you get especially west of the mountains, uh, it's even better for you. So um, I think there's probably like 10 parks that are extreme enough to really kind of make a big difference. And then after that, there's like 20 that are all kind of in the middle. And like, if someone's looking at it and saying, oh, man, I can play in Detroit or I can play in Cleveland, the park isn't going to make it a big difference. Right. Yeah, you said that West Coast because yeah, if you do go in by like 100 miles, um, then you have the exact opposite situation. Right. Then you have the high desert and the, the, the ball really flies. Right. You have the California League and, the, and yeah. a number of PCL homes there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, and this is going to get uh, to another question I have. You you recently wrote about Bryce Harper and uh, the prospects of a $500 million contract, which is yeah. just a – it's a huge number. I mean, because if, if as a person now for myself who's 36, I've you know, you've been through – witnessed the time, you know, which it like – a ten million dollar contract was a big deal, and yeah. um, then it became a hundred million dollar contract was a big right. deal. So you one becomes accustomed to the, the, the sort of way inflation works, and so you just expect it. Five hundred million does seem like a large figure, though. Um, what was particularly interesting about it is, uh, um, and you cite uh, Bryce Harper, the quote of Bryce Harper saying this is uh, is when he asks, he's asked about his contract about for him, and he says, uh, "Don't what don't undersell me." Don't sell me short. Yeah. Don't sell me short, right? Yeah. And and so on the one hand, we're talking about player awareness of park factors and to what you know, how extreme the effect has to be, 
for players to be aware of it in a casual way. I'm also curious, to what extent do you think players are aware of their value uh, on the on the free market, especially relative to how much they they typically mention in the media. That 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 was the rare thing, certainly for the experience of Bryce Harper, for a guy who is known as a um, you know as a uh, a very uh, dogged player who's uh, always hustling and even running into things, etc. Um, it's a, it's like a moment of like real keen awareness of his actual value on the open market. What, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it depends on who you're represented by and how interested you are in it. Like, I think there are some players who are extremely aware of their market value, and I think like Zach Greinke uh, this winter probably knew the ins and outs of the offers, and I think one of the reasons he probably took Arizona's offer is because of the different tax rates in Arizona versus in California. So, like, I think he probably did the calculations and figured out exactly how much money he was going to make down to the penny and uh, how much it was going to affect his take-home and I would imagine he was very involved. And then you probably have some other players that uh, just say, well, you know, I'm going to be rich either way, and I don't really care how rich. I'm going to leave that to other people to figure out, and I just want to go somewhere and be happy. And so I think it, uh, it it's probably a case where with Bryce Harper, he's known that he's the best player for his age uh, since he was like 14. And I mean, that hasn't been true the last couple of years because Mike Trout exists. But for a long time, in his mind, he was the best talent at his age grouping that existed on the planet. And he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was 15, and he was the number one pick of the draft and got a record bonus. And I think the idea of kind of what it will look like for him to be kind of a franchise superstar or a baseball uh, icon has been in, you know, a decade in the making, even though he's 23. So this isn't something that he just, like, started thinking about the other day when he went to arbitration. Uh, I think with... Scott Boris, he's probably had a lot of conversations about uh, what what he might be able to do and kind of what his personal brand could look like and when he gets to free agency. And I'm sure they've even talked about where he might want to play and how that would factor into different discussions. All right, Liberty has found the squeaky toy. <laughs> decided very good. Decided to bring the red dog. Let me uh, see if I can get that away from her. Yeah, Hold let's on. see what happens. dog has been quarantined so yeah my guess with harper is he's probably especially with scott boris advising him well aware of the fact that uh the yankees and dodgers and, and several other teams with significant resources are going to go bananas for him if he gets to free agency after age 25 is he is he uh, this is a lame question but i'm going to ask anyway because it occurred in my dumb brain but is is he essentially little lebron james of baseball I mean, I think that's kind of a hope, mm-hmm. at least from his perspective. But, I mean, the the problem is, like, LeBron was, at least, I guess, before Steph Curry got really good at shooting, uh, was, like, unquestionably the best player alive. And, like, in the discussion for best player ever, uh, Bryce Harper is not that because Mike Trout is a person. <laughs> Mike right. Trout is better at baseball than Bryce Harper. So Harper might be more marketable in a sense because I think Trout doesn't necessarily have, like, that – uh, outgoing, magnanimous, and he's, you know, not as much of a the power hitter who's going to hit 60 home runs one year or something. Um, so it's probably a little easier to sell Harper as kind of like this is the face of baseball. Um, but I think to some extent he's also 
disliked by some part of people in the game. I think like instead of a LeBron comparison, the question might be if he's more like the next Alex Rodriguez, where um, as soon as he leaves the Nationals, that fan base is going to turn on him. That seems pretty likely. <laughs> and uh, if he um, has a few more, you know, altercations with teammates or um, issues that kind of pop up with his managers in the future, it's not too hard to see him taking on a little bit more of like the really talented villain role where it's like this guy is acknowledged as a fantastic player, but also maybe uh, not that well liked. And so maybe instead of being LeBron James, he's, you know, Barry Bonds without the steroids. Yeah. Right. You know, doesn't it? Here's a question. If Mike Trout had been born in Nevada and Bryce Harper had been born in New Jersey. Yeah. Do you think that their narratives would have played out any differently, or at least, or their ability to play baseball? That's a good question, right? I mean, I think uh, what Trout. One of the reasons he was kind of under uh, hyped as a, as a high school player is because teams don't get good looks at northeastern kids. Um, it's kind of like a well-known deficiency of the weather there is teams just don't get as many chances. So perhaps if teams had been able to see Trout play uh, since he was younger, um, you know, maybe they they would have been able to identify him as, you know, one of the best players in the history of the game and would have been able to take him higher in the draft. And obviously if you get selected in the top five, you get more notoriety than if you go 22 or 21 or wherever Trout was drafted. Um, but at the same time, I think like Harper's prodigious power is just more obvious than Trout's obvious uh, kind of... Also awesome. very good power. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, right. But he didn't necessarily have that coming up, right? Like he was right. a great defensive, super fast center fielder who hit well not this guy who mashed 500-foot home runs. And so I think Harper's kind of more of a uh, one-skill, dominant-skill kind of guy, whereas Trout's uh, I'm-really-good-at-everything uh, approach is maybe a little bit more difficult to see in a short look. Right. And, of course, if you have – if you only have uh, – if you barely even have a short look. Right. Uh, which is the case with a lot of New England guys. I, I am interested in the way that, like, if you were to do a study of like northeastern and then maybe midwestern players, basically places where it snows yeah. and gets quite cold, um, if you were to look at their war, their like their career war figures or average annual war figures relative to draft position, I I, I feel like there well at least maybe you have a chance of finding a star um, f- later in the draft if he's if he's from uh, one of those places. Yeah, but I think what you're probably looking at is just increased uncertainty, right? Like if you get less information about these guys because they don't get to play as often and you don't get to see them play as often, you just have a wider spectrum of potential outcomes. So you're probably more likely to just miss really big and then also hit pretty big. And so I think on the guys like Trout, it's going to be like, man, if we just scouted Northeastern players more, Midwestern players more, and we spent more time in Canada – we would find these are like amazing ball players who uh, are going too low in the draft, and that seems like a huge opportunity. But if you do that and you start allocating more of your resources to that, there's a decent chance you're also going to just waste more draft picks and that you end up with guys who just can't play at all, which you didn't learn ahead of time because you didn't get to see them enough. And so instead of taking like mildly productive, solid league average players, you end up with a whole bunch of guys who never make it past a ball and one or two superstars. Maybe that's a better approach. I don't know, but I'm, I would be concerned if one team said, well, you know, cold weather players end up succeeding at higher rates than their draft position would suggest, suggest uh, without accounting for the fact that, like, they might also fail far more often. Okay. Uh, two questions before you totally fulfill your obligations here. 
today at Fangrass.com, I published a piece looking at uh, how the best top 40, how the top 40 players were acquired as amateurs. Yeah. You expected me to read that post before the podcast? No, I did not. But I'm okay, going to go bring ahead. up a, a thing to you. Is that of the players who received the top 40 projections for 2016 – is this the thing you tweeted out last night? Because I actually did see. Yeah. It, well, and not just well, – so zero of the top 20, right? Was right. it? And yeah. then, And if you pulled out to 40, which is every player who's projected for four wins or more, there's only – there are only five of 40 uh, international free agents or the, the players who started off as international free agents. Right. Um, yeah, I think it would be surprising if you, like, asked someone, name the best player projected for 2016 who came from another country, not through the draft. I don't think anyone, maybe outside of Cleveland, would guess Carlos Carrasco. Right, yeah. I that's, mean, a pretty, that's a pretty surprising name. Felix uh, Felix Hernandez. And Miguel and, Cabrera, I think, would be, like, by far the two kind of unanimous selections. And they're on the list, but have Carrasco. I mean, what, Carrasco's, like, point one more ahead of Felix, so it's not a huge difference. But uh, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, Carlos Carrasco, not the guy. I would but the best international player yeah, in the yeah. league. Yeah, that's yeah. not that's not intuitive. Another thing that's not intuitive, best Dominican player, Starling Marte. Right. Um, also I mean, not intuitive, yeah. Right. I, I, uh, I regard Starling Marte as a talented player. Yeah, he's very good. And uh, he's very good in spite of the fact that he doesn't really control the plate all that well, too. He does everything. Uh, he, makes very con- well. he makes contact at, like, an average rate. He just doesn't walk. Right. Like, that's his one deficiency in his game is he doesn't draw walks. Right. But he does a lot quite well. He does everything else. Right. <clears throat> the uh, uh, That's also surprising, though, because uh, one thinks of the great uh, tradition of Dominican players. I'm not talking long-time, like, old tradition. I'm talking about, you know, the last 10 years. There's some very good players from that. That area, and of course, uh, we uh, we have more news all the time of uh, teams, you know, going over their their spending pools, their uh, international pools to to get players out of there. I mean, was it the was it the Yankees three years ago or whatever, um, where even without signing a Cuban player, they spent like they outspent their their bonus pool by some um, incredible amount. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is kind of the game heading more uh, international in terms of spending and. Um, for the for the draft to be that significant or that dominant of a uh, a way to acquire premium talent while teams are also throwing more money internationally is not something I think we expected. But then once you look at the names, it's it's not like this is like steamers screwing up here. I mean, like you know, Trout and Harper and Machado, these guys really did all come through the draft. So um, you know, Chris Bryant and Nolan Arenado, like these are all excellent kind of uh, domestic players, and uh, I think it's a little bit surprising. Given how much focus there is on the internationalization of the game, and maybe it's this the fact that Felix and Cabrera and these guys have gotten a little bit older, and and the kind of the next wave hasn't gotten here yet. But we we seem to be in a position where um, it's it's interesting how uh, kind of domesticated the top stars of the game are right now. Right, and it should be noted there are players in the list too who uh, were born uh, were born in a different country, but for whatever yeah. reason were subject were to still draft. drafted. Yeah, I mean Jose oh. Fernandez, of course, yeah. is, and Carlos Correa. I mean, I guess Puerto Rico is like a, a Dominican or a U.S. Uh, territory, but you know, it's not the U.S. Right. There's at least uh, one Canadian on there, and Joey Votto. Right. Um, and uh, Albert Pujols was born in the Dominican, of course. Played. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes. Uh, well, he's not on the list, but he's been he was good for a long time. That's the point. All right. That's the one question I had. Uh, so. Um, it's a question mark for the for the for the time being. Is that right? What, what, yeah. I mean, what, I, what the influences might be. 
Right. I mean, it's probably just cyclical. Like, uh, give it a couple of years, and like, uh, it'll probably be a wave of really good international kids, and we'll be like, oh, look, the game is being taken over by international kids, and then Donald Trump will want to build a wall around the stadiums. <laughs> okay. The <laughs> the last uh, the last thing is, tell me about uh, this. Is we didn't I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I figure I might as well ask you uh, your thoughts on it. Tell me about Fangraphs membership. Yeah, we should talk about it. Uh, yeah. We should probably talk about it like every podcast forever. Just yeah, like, let's do it. Yeah, it's probably good. I assume it's good for me, keeping yeah. me employed. Yeah. Uh, so I think like over the years, uh, David Appleman and I have had like a number of conversations, uh, just kind of about like not necessarily the future of Fangraphs, but just kind of the best way to uh, to subsist, right? Like you know, I think it's pretty common knowledge that most content-driven sites uh, on the internet are uh, having trouble monetizing their their existence, and so we've seen like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and a few other places succeed with a paywall model where they uh, essentially give away a small portion of their content and then the rest of it you have to pay for. Um, but a, a lot of newspapers uh, tried to go this direction and failed miserably because they found very quickly that people were not willing to pay for um, you know, local news or, um, you know, not the Wall Street Journal's take on the news anyway. But do, yeah, uh, do hyper-local papers do better? Like, like if you're from a small town in North Carolina, do you think that paper has been, is less affected by the effect of technology? I don't think so. I think no. when you look at like kind of the consolidation of newspapers and they're all getting bought up by like Tribune Company or these, um, you know, these media conglomerates who bought a whole bunch of small papers that are constantly laying people off. And uh, I don't think time, I don't think it's good times at the small local papers uh, okay. right now, as far as I know. Um, but it's, it's a difficult proposition is like, uh, the ad revenue bubble burst well, when the dot com bubble burst and then it kind of grew and now it's kind of tapering off again. And so trying to look at it and say, you know, for what basically a decade, Fangraphs has been supported by ad revenue. And, you know, we sold Fangraphs Plus and we sell the Hardball Times Annual. But, like, generally, like, our income is ad revenue. Um, and I think, you know, long term, the, the, there's probably, um, you know, a better model. We just didn't know what it was. And I think we've not wanted to go the paywall model uh, for various reasons. Most most knowingly, like, it hasn't worked in a lot of places, and we didn't want to necessarily shrink our audience. Uh, and, you know, we really like our community, and we like being able to engage with baseball fans, even if they're not uh, die-hard baseball fans. We want them to be able to learn about the game and kind of provide non-ramp. Um, so I think kind of this NPR model, which is kind of how Fangraphs membership is, uh, is built around of, like, you know, uh, kind of just asking people, hey, look, if you find value in this and you you want to support the site and you want us to stick around, uh, just give us 20 bucks a year. And it's not too much to ask for. We're not demanding, uh, you know, that you do this. It's voluntary. You can decide if, if it's not worth it to you, that's fine. It's not worth it to you. But if you do find that, you know, you, you want to give us 20 bucks a year, we will be happy to take it. And that will help us not only keep the site in existence. It's not like Fangraphs was in trouble and needed a cash infusion and the doors were closing, but just in, the, in terms of long-term growth and can we hire more people and do more things and build more tools and buy more data, uh, I think these kinds of um, opportunities are good for us, and hopefully it allows us to, to kind of remain on course to, to grow Fangraphs and uh, have people uh, kind of grow with us. You mentioned the NPR model. Will we uh, be sending people NPR bumper stickers and totes? Uh, you know, I think we've actually talked about doing some kind of um, – I don't even know what those are called, but like yeah, kind yeah. of the Kickstarter tiers where if you like give us X amount of dollars, like Carson will come to your house and like MC your dinner. Uh, or maybe we'll have like Eno will draft your fantasy team for you. Or uh, Jeff Sullivan will take you to a volcano. 
Uh, and then, like, I think we could do, like, do some fun things. Like, Jeff Sullivan will take you to a volcano and for, like, $500 he'll throw someone in. Like, can you bring someone with you that you want to dispose of and he'll just, like, push them into the volcano for you? Yeah. But only, like, a baby, though. Like, well, someone who's not really on, on the grid. Maybe, uh, like, someone who's, like, uh, really not well liked. Like, Roger Goodell. Like, yeah, uh, I don't, yeah, it's true. A lot of people would not have a problem with that. Yeah. Huh. So instead of bumper stickers and mugs and, uh, you know, those kinds of things, maybe we'll offer some, like, experiences, which I think could be fun. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe people, maybe we'll do that, uh, in the not too distant future. Alright. Alright. So give us your money, people. That's the, that's the pitch. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree. I have to agree with it. So. <laughs> yeah, right. If you disagree with our pitch, you're fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to agree with it. And I want to agree with it. Alright. Well, now you have fulfilled your obligation. Which is not a monetary investment, but it's an investment of your time. Right. Yeah. Well, if not enough listeners uh, subscribe to the membership, then I'm going to get pushed into a volcano. Well, there are people who would not object to that either. Yeah, that's probably true. There's probably <laughs> people unsubscribing as we speak. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.